Hello, everyone. Welcome to the May edition of our Natural Wine Club. My name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, and today I'm going to walk you through uh, three different wines from all around the world. This month, we're starting off with a white from Le Grappin. Uh, last month, we also included a wine from Le Grappin. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just the way that things happen sometimes where, uh, you know, when our palates show up and we have multiple things on that palate that we desperately want to use in Wine Club, you know, we're going to do a little uh, back-to-back or side-by-side uh, comparison from the same producer, which I think is a very illustrative way of, uh, of tasting wine. The more you can taste from one single producer, the more you can sort of understand where their influences lie in the wine versus the influences of the terroir or the place from which the wine actually comes. Um, If you give, you know, 10 winemakers the exact same grapes, uh, the wines are all going to taste slightly different, but hopefully by tasting wines from the same, uh, you know, same vineyard, same village, same region, um, but from multiple different producers, it'll give you a better idea on what's truly terroir and what's more uh, winemaking style. Um, so in this case, we have Le Grappin's Macon Village, uh, which, again, uh, Mark, my business partner, and I uh, consistently say that this is one of our favorite wines of the entire year. Um, and it flies super under the radar because the Macon is, is sort of this unsung hero of the uh, of the region um, of a region that's really famous for supremely expensive white wines, which is Burgundy. Um, if you look at Burgundy as a whole in the north, you have Chablis, uh, which is super far away from the rest of Burgundy. Then the center uh, is the Cote d'Or. Um, the Cote d'Or is uh, is again, we're sort of the most famous or at, at the very least most expensive wines are coming from um, places, if you're thinking of white wine, uh, made in the style, you have Merceau, Pellini Montrachet, um, Chassang Montrachet, as well as, uh, you know, up and coming wines coming from Saint-Aubain, for instance, or even Bon Blanc. Um, so these wines are really expensive and, and you know, quite famous. And then further south, uh, you have the Macon uh, and Coteau Chalonnais, um, both of which, again, don't get the credit they deserve necessarily. There are plenty of really spectacular winemakers down here doing an incredible job um, making truly noteworthy wines and at prices that most of us can can afford, or at least on a, on a splurge day, perhaps. Um, so this is coming from... Uh, uh, kind of a collection of villages that is considered the best part of the Macon. Um, you have villages like uh, Utizi, uh, as well as uh, Pouifouissé. Um, Pouifouissé is probably the one that most people have, have actually heard of. Um, you'll often see this on bottles and those wines, although, again, not being quite as expensive as the rest of Burgundy, are definitely creeping up there. Um, like the rest of Burgundy, uh, the main grape variety here is going to be Chardonnay. So, uh, like most producers, they don't even bother putting it on the label uh, because you, if you see Macon Village and it's a white wine, you know for a fact it's Chardonnay. This is sort of the old world approach of putting place above ingredient, essentially, being like it's because it comes from the Macon that it tastes like this. Um, Chardonnay is just sort of the uh, the medium through which the Macon shows itself. Uh, so the Macon is sort of the more important thing that they're that they're listing on the label here. Um, 
The Mackerel has very similar soils to what we would see in the rest of Burgundy, so uh, a large focus on um, this sort of combination of limestone uh, and clay. It's this interplay of limestone um, that adds sort of freshness and clay that adds body that really makes these wines have a lot of tension. Um, they have this great ability to both be refreshing but also satiating at the same time. They really you know, feel like complete wines. Um, this wine is made in a, in a fairly simple way, uh, as are most of the wines in our portfolio. Um, but uh, this is what we call a direct pressing. So they take grapes that are, you know, still on the bunches and they're pressing them directly into a combination of tank and barrel. Um, in this case, uh, starting off in, in tank and then, uh, and then eventually moving into barrel. Um, this is often what we call racking. Uh, so what you do is when you first crush the juice, you're going to have a lot of solids in there. Um, you know, a lot of little floaty bits all hanging out, maybe little pieces of grape skins, maybe pieces of stem even making their way through seeds, whatever it happens to be. Um, and so what you can do is you can let it settle in a tank for a period of time. Um, you know, I think in their case, they're doing it for a day or two, um, you know, at cold temperatures. And basically most of that stuff is going to sink to the bottom and then you can rack or again, siphon off, I guess is maybe, a, is, uh, an easier way to think about it. Um, all the clear juice from the top of the tank, and then you leave sort of the sludge at the bottom, um, to, you know, you can do something else with that. If you so desire, uh, drink it, it'll be delicious. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And then that way you're going into barrel with quite clean juice. You don't have a ton of solids. You're still definitely going to have, you know, little bits and pieces of things, especially proteins that are sort of floating around there, making the wine hazy. Um, but it's just a cleaner way of taking your wine and putting it into barrel. Barrels obviously have a very small opening. So cleaning out the inside of them is, um, quite challenging. Most barrels are, are steam cleaned. Uh, and so it's, uh, you know, the, the least amount of stuff you can get in there, uh, the easier it's going to be to clean at the end of the year. Uh, these barrels are 350 liter and 400 liter barrels, which are kind of an in-between size. Um, often when you talk about barrels in Burgundy, you're talking about uh, 228 liter barrels, um, or you're talking about 500 liter barrels, uh, which are called punchins. Um, so this is kind of an in-between size, but I think it, it makes for this in-between style. The bigger the barrel, uh, the less oxygen that you're going to get into it. So bigger barrels tend to yield wines that are a little bit more tight, a little bit more focused. Smaller barrels tend to, tend to oxidize a little bit quicker, so they tend to be a little bit more open. But you're also getting a lot more influence from the actual oak, whether that be flavor, whether that be tannins. Um, there's a bunch of different things that oak can actually impart to the wine other than just sort of, you know, vanilla, uh, <laughs> as a lot of us are sort of familiar with. So although this is aged in oak, you're not really going to get too many oaky characteristics out of this wine. For me, this is quintessential Chardonnay. I think a lot of people that dislike Chardonnay are unfamiliar with this style of Chardonnay because I think this style is quite easy to get along with. Um, it's, uh, again, equal parts fresh and satiating. It's got, you know, sort of ripe fruit characteristics, whether that be um, stone fruits like, uh, you know, peach and nectarine kind of in that 
you know, that, that end of the spectrum, um, as well as a delicate floral quality to it, almost like gentle white flowers. There's definitely a nuttiness here. Um, for me, it's definitely, uh, you know, macadamia nut that, that sort of, um, buttery, but without having the dairy quality of butter. Uh, it's not that type of buttery. It's definitely got more of that nut butter characteristic to it. Um, and then a salinity, really sort of salty finish to it that makes it really great with food. For me, my food pairings are, are uh, you know, for this one, I, I decided to go with breakfast because I think uh, Macon Chardonnay is, uh, is an excellent way to start off your day. Um, in particular, this wine goes really, really well with eggs. So think of any sort of like savory egg custards, think of uh, egg-based sauces, um, and then think of, you know, honestly, just like fried eggs with some toast and butter. Uh, I think that'd be an amazing pairing with this. So I think you can keep it pretty simple, but if you did want to do something more classic, the Macon, like most places in France, is really famous for uh, roasted chicken. So you can imagine uh, this with roasted chicken. There's a bunch of places around here where you can forage for mushrooms as well. So you can imagine this with a, you know, a side mushroom dish. We get a really small amount of this wine every year, um, usually around 20 cases. Um, so like 240 bottles. Uh, so essentially, you know, half of our allocation this year went into our wine club. It's honestly one of the best value wines in the portfolio. I know most people look at, you know, 3650 and think, yeah, like that's like a pretty expensive bottle of wine, but relative to other wines from this region, it is incredibly well priced, especially considering that, you know, we got organic farming, um, the vines are mature, so sitting at 30 years old, uh, coming from a great site between two epic villages, um, again, uh, near Usizi and, uh, and Puifuise. So it's, you know, all in all, I think this wine offers incredible value, especially for people who like white burgundy, but don't always have the budget to drink it, myself included. <laughs> uh, all right. So our next wine, we're going to go to the Czech Republic. Um, as always, we're trying as much as we can to include wines from as many different regions as possible. Uh, it's not always easy because a lot of these smaller regions, we get really small allocations that are maybe all spoken for already, um, or maybe we actually just don't even get enough bo bottles to actually make it into the club. Um, you know, there's over a hundred of you in the wine club, so it's uh, it's sometimes hard finding wines that can that we actually get those quantities in, especially after a couple really short vintages. Um, uh, sort of all across Eastern Europe. So this particular wine is coming from the southern part of, che of the Czech Republic. It's actually quite close to Vienna in Austria. So you can actually just drive north of Vienna if you end up, uh, you know, anywhere near this region. Um, it's uh, It kind of reminds me a lot of Alberta in a lot of ways. There's lots of wheat grown here. It's sort of rolling hills, um, kind of looks like prairie land to a, a greater lesser degree. It's not particularly forested or anything like that. Um, and so it definitely reminds me of home. The other thing that reminds me of, of here is the fact that there's often quite a warm wind blowing, um, usually blowing in from the uh, from the east over across Hungary. Um, they call it the, the Pannonian winds, um, or at least I've heard it referred to that way several times. There's the Pannonian plains in um, across Hungary. And so it's sort of, you know, it's this long sort of flat area that seems to allow wind to cross over. 
this is really great for uh, Milan Nestrak, uh, the producer uh, who we're talking about in the Czech Republic, because it helps dry out the vineyards. Um, uh, in spring, when you're getting a little bit more rain, it's definitely beneficial to have some gentle, warm winds going through that help dry everything out so that you don't end up with problems with fungus. Um, Milan is uh, very much into a minimalist farming technique, but at the same time is very um, detail-oriented. <laughs> uh, he's obsessive when it comes to having his vineyards be, uh, be perfect but be alive at the same time. It's that really beautiful balance it's like when you go to, uh, you know, Japanese gardens and the goal is to, you know, not have everything be aligned so perfectly, but more to sort of mimic nature in, in the best sort of way and highlight imperfections and, and allow them to happen, but at the same time, put them in this really beautiful context. Um, so I think Milan Nesterak does a, a great job of that. We've worked with his wines for five years now, which is quite a long time for us considering we're only you know, a little over five years old. So it's super cool to see his progression over the course of the last bunch of years. When we first started getting the wines, they were quite esoteric, quite wild. Um, then he sort of went uh, a slightly different direction in the middle, and now his wines are really honed in. Um, I think that the wines are the best that they've ever tasted and just keep getting better every single vintage. He's still experimenting a lot in the, uh, in the winery, but the results are coming out way cleaner, way more focused. Um, and so this is kind of an ode to where he comes from to a greater lesser degree. Uh, he used to make a lot of orange wine, pretty much all the wines that he made from white grapes. He fermented on the skins in order to make them into what we would call orange wine or amber wine or skin fermented white wine, whichever you know verbiage you feel like using is fine. Um, but uh, essentially, he got away from that over the last little bit. He felt that the orange wine style sort of clouded the influence of the vineyard, at least for his particular wines. I think he still believes that orange wine is a valid style for showing terroir, but maybe less so for his grape varieties and in his particular region. Um, and so he felt like only certain grape varieties in certain situations deserve to be fermented on skins. And so now most of his white grapes are made into white wine, um, with this being sort of the notable exception. And this wine is called ochre, um, named after the, uh, the pigment. Uh, and if you've ever seen ochre, it, this wine is very much of that color, which is quite beautiful, kind of this bronzy orange, uh, kind of amber color really, really quite beautiful. So this is a blend of Chardonnay, Grünerweltliner, Sauvignon Blanc, and Gewürztraminer. Um, the only grape that you could really consider indigenous in here would be Grünerweltliner, which in theory uh, probably comes from somewhere just south of where they are in Austria. And so it probably migrated to um, the Czech Republic, you know, hundreds of years ago, potentially, versus Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, Gewürztraminer are more sort of recent additions to the region. Although he focuses primarily on indigenous grape varieties, there are a bunch of sort of older plantings and interesting plantings um, of these, uh, what we'd call international grape varieties, so grape varieties that tend to be planted all around the world. Um, this wine is, uh, they destem the grapes first, and then they ferment whole berries in tank, uh, for about a week. So it's not super long skin contact. We've had wines that have had up to a year of skin contact. So a year of macerating the juice with the actual grape skins. This 
generally yields a very savory style wine, very earthy, very umami. Um, but by fermenting just for a week on skins um, and as whole berries where, again, you're not getting a ton of oxygen into those berries, you're allowing for fruity characteristics to develop, um, this is gonna be a way more approachable style of orange wine. For me, this has kind of been my go-to suggestion for people who are interested in delving into orange wine. Um, I, I really love the the style. Uh, I think it's, again, juicy and fruity and still has that textural component of orange wine from the skins, so a little bit of tannin, uh, something that, again, I really enjoy. I think people have sort of forgotten about how joyous tannins can be, the way that they, you know, dry your mouth a little bit, um, especially when eating fatty foods. So, you know, I think that it's a, it's quite an approachable style, but still has that tactile element that I really crave from orange wine. Um, this wine is bottled without any SO2. Uh, so this is sort of a rarity for our portfolio. Although we work with natural wines, most of our wines see at least a little bit of uh, sulfur dioxide just to make sure that the wine stays safe in shipping. But Milan is comfortable enough and confident enough in his winemaking that he doesn't even add any sulfur at all. That being said, I think because of that, uh, you know, I don't like leaving this wine open for too long. I think, you know, try and drink it in a night between a couple pals. Uh, it is a one liter bottle after all. So you got a little more bang for buck in this month's uh, wine club. Um, but that being said, if you're drinking it on day two, it should be great as well. Uh, as long as you're keeping it in the fridge, um, it's once you start getting sort of over that threshold where you start developing uh, some sort of unfriendly flavors that, that I'm less keen on. So um, yeah, I'd say that, you know, Ideally, you drink this over the course of an afternoon or an evening, uh, but honestly, once you see how delicious it is, you're going to have no trouble finishing it. Um, they did bottle this under crown cap. Uh, crown caps are really great for preventing oxygen from getting into the bottle. They're also quite inexpensive. They don't uh, they don't have cork taint the way that corks can, um, and so they're they're kind of the ultimate closure in a lot of ways. So I really love that he's he's gone for that. The reason behind the one liter bottle, uh, just to give you some context, is that historically in this region, that's what wine was bottled in, and so. Even though he exports most of his wine and, and the locals are maybe a little skeptical of his, uh, his winemaking style, uh, it's, uh, he wanted to do an ode to you know, the way that things used to be. And so I love the one liter bottles. I think they're, they're sort of perfect party size for sure. Uh, and then his wife actually did the, uh, the lino cut label uh, that we have here. His wines in this uh, tier of his portfolio uh, used to have like a far more sort of just like simple you know, typeface-based label versus now uh, his wife has uh, carved out these really cool ones and, and done these uh, these little lino cuts. So um, shout out to Lenka, just like really rad. Uh, I absolutely love it. So nice change for sure. And then our last wine is Dormalona Tinto. Um, every year I look forward to our Dormalona uh, allocation. Uh, I just think that the Tinto is, you know, it was one of the the wines that really got me excited about um, Australia again. For me, Australia during my wine career, uh, at least in the early parts, was all about high alcohol, lots of oak, uh, really sort of flamboyant wine styles. And it, it was just overwhelming. You taste a couple of those in a row and then you, you start 
not being able to notice the difference. It's like if you have music turned up all the way to the point where your ears can't even really differentiate between any of the sounds. Um, and so for me, I found, you know, a lot of Australian wine quite boring uh, for the first handful of years. Again, there's always going to be exceptions to that rule, but that was sort of where I was at. Then fortunately, uh, three or four years ago, we got introduced to um, Josephine Perry, Joe from Dormalona, and uh, we got to taste her Shiraz, uh, which is what this is, uh, so Tinto, um, and I was just blown away. I was just like, okay, this is everything I want from Australia. It's still got that really you know, Australia is a, is a warm place. You get lots of sunshine. And so I think that the wines should taste sunny. Um, but at the same time, they shouldn't taste baked. Uh, and this was always the problem for me in, in, um, in Australian wines was that they often to taste like cooked products, whether that be jams, whether that be, you know, pie filling, whether that be uh, dates and things like that. So the, these sort of desiccated fruits versus, you know, I want freshness, I want liveliness, um, I want something that's going to be uplifting while I eat food or, or, you know, even just crush a bottle on its own in this case. Um, so for me, I was really, really excited. Uh, um, Josephine started making wine, uh, well, she started wine, wine sorry, losing my reign here. Uh, she started making wine in Australia, but uh, ended up going over to Spain to do uh, some work there for a period of time. That's where she got the moniker Dormalona, which means lazy bones. It's not because she's a lazy bones. Uh, it's because uh, pretty much every morning she would get up and go do, you know, a hike, go for a run, go surfing, go for a bike ride, you know, something along those lines. And then, uh, you know, come back, have breakfast, uh, and then everybody else would wake up at, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock because it's Spain. That's what time people get up at. Uh, and then by, you know, 9, 10 o'clock at night when everybody's sitting down for dinner, she's exhausted because she's been awake for, you know, four hours more than everybody else. And so she would fall asleep at the table and everybody gave her the moniker of, uh, of Lazy Bones or as it's called in Spanish, Dormalona. Um, she decided that this name was uh, so hilarious that she uh, decided to name her winery that. So that's how we get uh, get Dormalona. Uh, this is coming from the Margaret River. So the Margaret River, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the layout of Australia, this is on the western side of Australia. So you're talking about, you know, a four or five hour flight away from Sydney. Uh, so on the completely other side of the continent. Uh, not only that, but it's uh, quite a bit different um, climatically than other parts of Australia. Margaret River itself is almost on a peninsula. Um, so you're getting a lot of influence from the ocean from essentially two different directions simultaneously, which makes it quite a bit cooler. They've done a lot of uh, like heat mapping and, and humidity mapping and all these sort of things. And they've shown that the closest classic region to this is actually Bordeaux, um, which makes a lot of sense. Bordeaux, also quite coastal, um, so you, you end up with a lot of sort of similarities. The other sort of, de, you know, determining factor of a, the style from Margaret River is that there's tons of eucalyptus around here. And so often Margaret River wines uh, are said to have a eucalyptic quality. And I definitely find this in a lot of her wines, whether that be in the whites, often like a hoppy quality or... Um, you know, sage or sometimes a mintiness. Uh, and then same thing in the reds. Uh, there's always this freshness, this sort of herbal characteristic that 
you know, maybe not at the forefront, but definitely sort of an underlying layer that I think is really quite delicious. Uh, This wine is made fairly simply, um, so doing whole cluster fermentation, so not even taking the grapes off the stems. Uh, They're doing it in open top tank. Um, This just allows the wine to ferment in sort of the most natural way possible. Some of the berries that aren't popped, they're going to start fermenting from the inside out, which is called carbonic maceration. Uh, It's usually when you have a blanket of, of um, of CO2 over top of the wine, but in these instances uh, where fermentation is creating a lot of CO2 anyways, you can have small amounts of carbonic maceration happening inside of these unpopped berries. So it tends to increase the fruitiness, um, but the stems themselves add a really lovely spiciness. It helps soften the acidity a little bit. Um, so all these things are, are really beneficial for the style of wine that she's looking to make. Um, the wine uh, just sort of hangs out in tank. They're not really doing any uh, any barrel aging here. They just want to keep the wine as fresh as possible, kind of protect it from oxygen, in fact. Um, and then after, uh, after letting the wine settle for a small uh, period, they rack the wine. So that same technique that we talked about at the start where they let the solids sort of settle to the bottom and then take off the, uh, the clear at this point, wine from the top, and then they bottle it unfined and unfiltered with uh, just a little bit of uh, a little bit of SO2. Um, this wine is under screw caps, so like crown caps, they're sort of the ideal way of, of closing a bottle. They're not allowing any oxygen in, or you can actually buy specific uh, screw caps that allow just micro amounts of oxygen in, so you can really get that dialed, but you're not going to end up with a corked bottle or anything like that. Um, they're arguably better for the environment, although I've heard uh, people make arguments from both sides of the spectrum. Um, in theory, you can recycle them indefinitely, so provided they are being recycled, they're, they're a pretty good option for you, although uh, aluminum, the actual binding of it and, and the places from which it comes, all of that is a little bit uh, controversial. So um, anyways, as far as stylistically goes, this is absolutely crushable red wine. This is just so juicy and soft. The tannins are really mellow, really velvety. Um, so you don't end up with a ton of that mouth drying effect. You end up with more um, of this sort of, again, soft, sort of gentle, silky quality on the palate. I think pretty much everybody is going to love this wine and become quite obsessed Again, we only get <laughs> a small amount every year and everybody has kind of gone crazy for it simultaneously, which means that I think we're only stuck with a couple cases at the moment. And so it'll, uh, it most likely will not be around for long. Um, we're going to keep it fairly short today. I think next month we'll have a couple really wicked guests on the podcast. So stay tuned for that. Uh, if anybody has any questions about any of the wines, feel free to reach out to us. My email address is Eric, E-R-I-K at juiceimports.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can also DM us on Instagram. We're just at Juice Imports. Um, Again, we we love hearing from you. We love hearing about how much you like the wines, or if you didn't like a wine, we'd love to know why. Uh, It could be an issue with the actual bottle, or maybe you just uh, didn't dig the style, which is also totally okay. Everybody can have their own palates. So either way, we look forward to chatting with you again soon, or hopefully seeing you at one of our events in person. Uh, Have a great rest of your week. Cheers.